0: Okay. So in the, in the, in the compo, like in the country right behind us here for a thousand years, they've had a soccer game around sunset. Mm -hmm. Okay. Every night around sunset guys, agricultural guys are getting off work and they go and they work out by playing soccer and they gamble with it. And there's a bunch of community oriented things around the soccer game. Okay. A year ago, off of a government grant, they went in and put Wi-Fi in that whole community, and that was the last. The day, the day that they turned that Wi-Fi signal on, was the last time that soccer game happened. Wow. Okay, so are they not supposed to have internet back there? Where's that development and good and not? Because that's a piece of their culture that's going to be really hard to get back.
1: Hey guys, Ryan here with another uncomplication. Uh, I got a treat for you today. I have an interview with my friend Pete. He is the co founder in the Crypto Garden. Uh, he's been living down in Ecuador for 14 years. And we got on to talk about uh, the Crypto Garden, but then I just started peppering him with questions. I just wanted to know more about his experience in uh, a developing country. I just played a clip up front just to kind of tease you a little bit. This is a great conversation, it goes pretty deep into. Um, the values that would make someone pick up and leave the comforts of America for a a developing nation and all the things that he's seen in 14 years as that country has grown. We do circle back around and talk about crypto uh, towards the end. He has some really interesting perspectives seeing all the corruption and things that happen in South America and how crypto can actually play a part in fighting it. So, yeah, this is kind of like a podcast, you know, put your headphones in, zone out, drive to work, go to bed, go for a run, whatever you're doing. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Cheers. So let me ask you this. Um, And the cool thing about something like the Crypto Garden is that it is a community. So you get all these people showing up. We were actually pretty surprised to see that our our community is very global. Uh, I, I think it's the majority are outside of the United States. So you get all of these interested, interesting people from around the world. And um, you're one of them, my friend, you, you know, kind of left this life that I'm living, you know, we, we, we grew up in the same city, more or less, you know, had a lot of the same friends. And then you just pieced out and moved to a developing country. Why? You know, what, what, what is in your kind of DNA that um, had you kind of leave this whole system and go find your values somewhere else? um I well part
0: of it is is that um i was just getting wrapped up into the american dream we had just bought our first house we were working two jobs and our friends our circle of friends were just having the first set of kids and i was definitely not ready for kids or that commitment and i saw i kind of when my best friend had kaya um his first daughter and that was kind of our like closest friend group. I just couldn't see the writing on the wall. And, and, and not that I didn't want kids. I just didn't want to have kids at that time. So then when we came on vacation to Ecuador, we took a month off when we came to the beach. And I had been working for Countrywide Home Loans, which was like right in the epicenter of the 2008 crash. And that was the culmination of of leveraged money, right, of all of it. And I was working corporate America, I came out of mugs, which I got my kind of, my entrepreneurial wings, and then went into corporate America to try to learn about that and, and, and to be honest, to make, some, to make some cash. And it just, like, when I was here on the beach, comparing it to what I was going back to, sitting in that cubicle and looking at spreadsheets and wearing a suit and tie every day, I knew that that was not right. Just for a fact, I was like, "This is that's not what I'm supposed to be doing uh, with my life." And so, my parents, fortunately, also had both been abroad. My dad had been working in Africa for a long time and, and in other places, and then my mom had also pulled a stint in Iceland. So, to be not living in America and working in a foreign country wasn't that foreign for my 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 family personally. For Maya, it was super. Mm-hmm for um my partner was super foreign she had been from Alaska to Colorado and and that's it and i and i had moved around a bunch so for me to move around it wasn't that crazy but to do it as a unit and to do it just a couple of years after we got married right after we were going to start buying houses and all that kind of stuff so
1: what was that conversation like with her was she on the same page was she not feeling the american dream or was it some um, convincing it was well To be honest,
0: I, she flew home to go back to work at the hospital and I changed my ticket from going home with her and came back to the beach and I actually put down $10,000 on the restaurant, the bar without actually telling her about (laughs) that. And then, (laughs) and then called her after the fact and was like, Hey, remember when we were talking about moving to Kanoa? Like, well, we, we just put our money where our mouth was a little bit and so we should we're going to move back and so the the deal was is that we could we would do it for a year so that was our original agreement And so mm-hmm. we moved here august 26th in 2008 and so our deal was every august 26th, our birthday of moving here we would um our anniversary of moving here we would have a, a deal if she wanted to go back we'd go back huh. no questions asked so
1: so when you told her that that you had put money down she was coming back was she excited was she baffled like what was that conversation like
0: yeah, no, it wasn't totally foreign. I just don't think she believed me. Because, I like, the mm. second day I was in Kanoa, when I saw someone paraglide, I, w- I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't even know you mm. could fly like that. Maybe I had seen hang gliding, but I definitely hadn't seen paragliding. And, like, the second day I was here when I saw that guy flying around the cliffs and there was, like, surfing and paragliding and, you trop- <laughs> know, I was like, I'm moving here and nobody believed me. I told a bunch of people, I told my best friend, Mm -hmm. I told my, I think I even told my mom and dad like day two or three, they're like, how is it? I was like, I'm moving here. I'm not fucking around. This is, this is where it's at. And then just kind of for luck and for the support of a great family and my wife's being awesome and that kind of stuff, it just kind of, kept falling down that path and they just kept working
1: yeah so that first year i mean Kanoa's has changed a lot we visited you like maybe a year or two after you moved and i remember like it was dirt roads all the way out like it was really hard to get to very small community that first year that you guys were there did you ever question like what the hell are we doing or was it all yeah positive? The, first
0: year was, the first year was hard there was some year to year, you know, and moving from, we're really lucky where we're yeah. from. Our poor people in the United States are, are really fortunate, even the, you know, from, from international standards, we live inside generally, our poor people have electricity more or less, you know, on the, so that being right up amongst the poverty that was, was more intense poverty where they're worried about if they're going to eat later today or tomorrow, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, that was a little bit different. And then just, we didn't speak any Spanish right i mean we, we could do the ola chow and cerveza and Banyo, but we definitely were not putting together sentences and spanish is tricky because you can go from spain spanish to mexico spanish to ecuadorian spanish to the coast of ecuador spanish is different all the time and so even if you did even if we had spoke spanish there's some level of relearning the local dialect hmm. so the first year was really tricky it was a godsend that we bought a business because that forced me at least to learn Spanish right away. I couldn't, we couldn't, because we had employees that didn't speak English. So day one, we're doing charades and the communication thing was tricky. And Maya didn't talk for a year. She basically just did not learn Spanish for a year. And so, or talk on a level where she's a pretty chatty person. Right. And like, and and I, it's a little bit trickier for girls, I think, or at least for, for my, because I don't think girls can just like go to a bar and like buddy up like guys can. Guys can like belly up to the bar and like be buddies with that guy all of a mm-hmm. sudden over like a sports game or something. And I think girls are a little more guarded than that maybe or something. So for it, it just took her a little bit longer to make friends and to learn the language. Because you, as a couple, you can use each other as a crutch too, mm-hmm. right? So I was always speaking Spanish, so she didn't have to. And so it was kind of like a year in, it was like, she was like, I'm just not making friends. And I was like, well, you just don't talk, (laughs) you know, you haven't said anything in 12 months, you know? And so that was kind of a realization for her to jump into class. And then
1: Hmm.
0: I think that first year was like the language barrier was, was tricky. And then also just like the local, like customs of like how to move through a new culture with, without offending everybody all the time. Which is which is tricky, you know, and then also not be being afraid to offend people just because you're trying. You're not being; it's not coming Mm. from a malicious place. It's coming from a place of just not knowing. Mm. And sometimes, not trying is more offensive than trying and getting it wrong.
1: Mm.
0: You know, and so it's kind of that fine line where you're just learning. The learning curve is so damn steep, and that for me was the funnest part. Like I was in Mm. America, kind of in the learning curve at about, you know, not not. I mean, you you can get as steep as you want to get in the States. I'm not saying you can't keep it steep, but when you automatically wake up in a a day and you don't speak the language, you're going to be learning whether you want to or not. It's getting shoved down your throat. So that was pretty cool. That was one of the positives of the hard thing of the first year, I guess. Yeah,
1: I was going to ask because, I mean, you've mentioned a few things and I'm thinking from Maya's perspective, like you know, personal safety, that just seems a little iffy. You know, you don't even have the language to ask, like, are we safe? Like, is this the right street to walk down? Like, you don't have that awareness. So, um, I guess what, with with those challenges, what was happening that was special, that was keeping you guys, you know, fighting that fight, staying committed, wanting to be there? Because it sounds like you were like in over your head from day one, what was the? Yeah. The
0: yeah. Um, is the pace like you know being um a Tuesday at noon and we're sitting on a patio with the breeze coming off the Pacific and go surfing, you know, and and so we set up a lifestyle to where if we work twenty hours a week, there is something wrong, you know, and mm-hmm. so and and gringos have a lot of money but they don't have a lot of time, and and America is a great place to make make a bunch of cash, um. But you 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 gotta spend a lot of cash to make it up there as well. And so you end up kind of in this you're making a bunch, but you're spending a bunch. And and meanwhile, you're you know, the city life to get to and from that's a lot of time. That shit adds up too. the, the commute mm-hmm. adds up as well, you know. And so the thing that keeps us down here 14 years out is just that we don't really have to work that hard comparatively. We don't make that much money we make about $1,200 a month. We're doing a little bit better. Now we figured out some tricks with the hotel and the restaurant we're, we're growing in business, but for a long time, we didn't make that much. And we didn't really feel like we weren't, we were poor because the cost of living is cheap down here. And then we just live, there's no credit cards, So you're never not without, within your means, you know, mm-hmm. you have to, it's all, it's only cash down here. And so so it's, it's, it's hard to kind of rack that up to a certain extent, you know? And so you're kind of in that even, you're always even, you know? And so I figure, like most of my friends that can't come visit or can't just go travel on the drop of the dime is because their bills are too high. Hmm. They got to keep, keep on that wheel to keep paying that shit down to keep up, keep their head above water, you know? And yeah. so that's a big difference down here. I mean, because of poverty, right? You're, li- you're living, you know, poorly, but in that you can't extend yourself too far to a certain extent i mean it's it's catch 22 i guess but the pace the food the food's good man you're close to your food here we live in a fishing village so you're catching shrimp and seeing the food come in that day that you're eating everybody's farming around here so that's literally my favorite thing is the food and how how fresh it is and we you know people talk about coming down here and getting sick when we go home now we get sick from the preservatives and just you're never going to meet a friend and eat some bullshit fast food somewhere like it's going to happen you know and so you just catch those kind of meals and you just like you, you just feel like sludge wearing your body down you know so long answers so
1: no that's good so i mean after those first couple of years you'd come back and visit how did your views of America or your friends or what they were doing? How did those change?
0: Like, Mm. so I think what scares me most in life is routine and, and, and there's nothing, nobody's at fault for that. You know, you, you can't be, you can't have that much of a wanderlust and be, providing a stable family life to your kids in elementary school and that kind of stuff. Right. So it's that like, it's, it's that dynamic of going home and everybody's doing the same shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and to be honest, if, if people will come down here, I'd be doing the same shit just down here, you know? And, but it's that dynamic of looking at a different place and seeing not much change, you know, so that was, that's kind of weird going over going home through the years, how much doesn't change you know, because there's not going to be in Colorado, there's not going to be a new I-25. That's that highway is going to go where that highway is going to go. You know what I mean? So, but down here, it's such a developing nation and a developing continent, to be honest, that they are putting in new highways, you know, and they're building Mm -hmm. new bridges. And so you're seeing big federal infrastructure projects come in and like change it, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and most of the time they're changing it for the better, you know, and for the better making stuff just more convenient, you know, convenience is expensive. It's a luxury that we take for granted, you know? And Mm so as it gets a little bit more convenient, it gets a little bit easier to live down here.
1: Maybe, maybe it's a delusion, but I have the sense when you talk about developing that a lot of the world is trying to get to an American level of convenience and transportation and you, know, you can buy everything you need at the store, which is the exact opposite of what you're saying you really value down there. Do you ever find that conflict of values where the American way of life is pedestalized and here you are saying, whoa, guys, you've got fresh food, dirt paths next to nature, like is developing yeah. food in that sense.
0: Yeah. So that's tricky. So it's not, it's not good or bad. It's just different. Right. And so, and and then, and then there's like levels, there's like base levels, I think. So I literally, like you mentioned before, got to see this community come from being accessed here by a 12 hour bus ride by a tourist to now you can get here in five hours. And so, and then what that level of just basic infrastructure can do to an economy, a local economy. So there's that, but then there's also like, okay. So in the, in the, in the compo, like in the country right behind us here for a thousand years, they've had a soccer game around sunset. Mm -hmm. Okay. Every night around sunset guys, agricultural guys are getting off work and they go and they work out by playing soccer and they gamble with it. And there's a bunch of community oriented things around the soccer game. Okay. A year ago, off of a government grant, they went in and put Wi-Fi in that whole community. And that was the last the day, the day that they turned that Wi-Fi signal on was the last time that soccer game happened. Wow. Okay. So are they not supposed to have internet back there? Where's that development and good and not because that's a piece of their culture that's gonna be really hard to get back? Yeah. You know, and, and then it went from like a fully engaged community to the Black Mirror, you know, and so so yeah, so development is good, but then, then there's there some unintended consequences sometimes that you get to see, and especially in this day and age with the with the rate of technology and where that's whole that whole hmm. thing is gone, you know. Yeah, so, you know, what
1: one of the things that I value about you is that you I mean, you're a raft guide. Like you come back to Colorado, you go down, you know, really impressive rapids, you take people down in groups, and you just have this uh I mean, it's confidence, but it comes from having been in the shit a lot and having been, you know, out of the boat a lot and knowing that you got to swim yourself back to get in the boat. So when we went into the Amazon, I had that just sort of confidence being with you that if shit went pear shaped, you know, like we would figure it out. We would, you know, get out of that situation. Um, and you also have with that, like a, a level of sort of, I don't know, it's like street smarts and just the wisdom that comes from being around people that are just, you know, living and surviving. And I remember on that trip in the Amazon, you know, there was a lot of moments that I probably, you know, signaled some discomfort or, you know, a a question or a judgment about something. And you had relayed to me a number of these, you know, whether they were books that you were read or experiences that you had about, you know, observing other people's cultures. And... You know, you see someone who is, you know, doing a shit job for hardly any pay. And as a gringo, it's like, man, that's that's broken. We need to fix that. And you kind of have this awareness of like, yeah, but that's how that guy's family eats. If you take away that job, now you're actually making the problem worse. I guess all of this is just a preamble to kind of tee you up. I'm I'm really curious, as an alien there, you know, you're an outside person, you're you're witnessing everything. How do you find your own balance between, you know, observing versus, you know, helping or, or uh, influencing and keeping those um, kind of untangled, if that makes sense? Yeah, that does. Make, yeah, that's a good question.
0: So one thing as an expat is that the country you're in is probably not going to change. You're going to have to change. Ecuador is going to be Ecuador, you know, and and it's not going to be a gringo solution most of the time. So that means you got to just act like a guest all the time, even when you see something wrong, you know, like animal abuse or even, you know, to be honest. Okay, this is kind of tricky. So domestic abuse is more prevalent here, and it's not as heavily as a consequence as it is in the States, where if you you know, if there's domestic abuse, chances are somebody's going to jail. If there's domestic abuse down here, chances are nobody's going to jail. And no, not, there's almost no consequences. and, And it's just kind of an accepted part of the culture. Okay. So for me to see a lady get smacked that like that evokes a lot of emotion in me, you know? And so walking that fine line of like, keeping your business and your shit to yourself and then not letting somebody get hurt, you know, or, or putting your nose into something where there's an uncle or a cousin or someone else, you know? And so you have to just completely separate what you think is right or your reality or Mm -hmm. your history and just clear all of that, you know, and, and, and some of it's in a selfish point, you got to just protect yourself you know, and your, and your family and you kind of keep your nose out of shit that you can't change or fix or anyway, you know, and that's hard for, I see expats not being able to tread that line, you know, and that's where you get into, it's not good or bad. It's different, right? We're not better or worse than them. We just come up with skin in a cat a different way than they do. And because of where we're from, right? We're, we're from, we're from a very fortunate place where the base level of education is X, you know, and you can bitch about America all you want, but when, but when you travel into less fortunate places, you get to see how fortunate we are, you know? And so coming from that place of, of, of gratitude about how lucky I feel for my, my family and my ability to get an education, I look at that as like a really fortunate thing not that i'm like a better than them thing because i learn different things that because of my if i call privilege whatever i don't learn because i'm privileged and they get to learn because they're not you know so like Mm. i don't i'm not really good at fixing things. i'm really good at buying new things right so (laughs) they're, they're really good at fixing things and so from living down here i i don't think about buying new stuff as quick as my american counterparts do i look at ways to fix things or can we fix that you know and so and so just little tricks like that. And, and, and ultimately it comes back to that. You got to change, you know, if you're going to survive in a different culture than you were raised in or that you've been accustomed to, you're not, your ego isn't going to change what's around here. You. you know, it's going to be you becoming in control of yourself to, to be able to adapt and to, you know, thrive and find love in different ways of loving, you know, because they, they mourn different than we do. Mm. right the first time you go to a funeral in a foreign country you're gonna learn a different way to mourn or see a different way to mourn which for me is they like they're loud here right they're like they're screaming and like wailing and to see like your like yeah. friends just like absolutely in hysterics in public you know it's like for conservative americans we don't peep we don't even you know if there's one tear we're like wiping it away at a funeral yeah. or something like that you know so just those kind of like really intimate things, you get to learn a lot about yourself and just different raw emotions. I get off the subject there again. Sorry.
1: No, <laughs> dude. In that. Two questions. So, there- so, so questions. I mean, I remember because you know we 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 went down and saw you a couple years after you moved down there, and then there were long stretches where like, you know, maybe I'd hear that you were in town, or I think you know I saw you up at the cabin one time, but I would always yeah. just sort of get this you know secondhand news about Pete. And I remember when I heard that you were, I mean, the way that it was explained to me is that you were basically living through hell on earth because your little community there got hit by a major earthquake and your beachside paradise was suddenly collapsed buildings. Um, And yeah, so as sort of an outsider at first, who then kind of had a business and established themselves and then went through the chaos of an earthquake how did that change your participation in that community? And what was that experience like going through like an actual disaster?
0: Um, That was, that was really tough. To see just the absolute devastation that a natural disaster can cause is pretty rough to fathom when you don't have any training about it. So I think like military personnel and firefighters and that kind of stuff they have like an idea or some kind of training of like that just the raw trauma of an event like that but when you don't have any of that it's pretty intense to see it you know dead bodies and dead children and and that kind of stuff i don't know if anybody can be ready for that you know but then to see one of the coolest things was to see what an international effort it was to see help coming from all over the world. You know, we had Irish people here, Canadian here, there was some Americans here, other countries in Europe were here, Mexico came down and helped. So that was, that was, you know, that was a pretty cool thing. Um, in the terribleness of it. <laughs> um, as far as from a personal level, we got a lot tighter with the community. We, we funneled all that effort and kind of social trust that people gave us with their philanthropy. When they were trying to help, they kind of funneled it through us. So we were able to organize a cleanup crew where we went in and uh, we, we kind of recovered people's belongings amongst the rubble by hand before the machines got in there because once the machines come, you lose everything. So Mm. we kind of organized that. And and through that just kind of more like caring effort, maybe it wasn't a big sweeping infrastructure thing, but it was more just like finding grandma and grandpa's photo album, that kind of stuff, which really went a long way. And then those, those, bonds that you make in those tougher times those are longer lasting than the bonds you make at the good times i think you know mm-hmm. and if we're five years out now and i still have great friends that were friendships forged and just absolute disaster you know so um so so that that's kind of a long term effect it's you know we go through the 7.8 earthquake we have 80 people or so dying kanoa of a sick of a a village of like six thousand people so it, it was significant you know and 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 some significant people you know one of my friends elvis cab driver his wife's a teacher they just adopted a kid building collapse on them so it, there's just some of these stories that were just gut-wrenching but then you know i'm still friends with elvis's mom and we still give each other big hugs mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff so like that, that survivor kinship is pretty cool You know, or we just made it through something that was really tough and came out on the other end and some people didn't. So there's that lucky feeling that we made it, you know. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of things that were that weren't awesome, you know, like government, like donor dependency, you know, like watching how you can mess up a great intention about giving people supplies. And then if you don't distribute it in the right way, it doesn't get received well. You know so there were some of those there's always going to be the unintended consequences you know and then and you hear you know kind of how these ngos can screw things up they have a bunch of money but there's unintended consequences when you come into these places and just throw a bunch of money around and so to see those unintended unintended consequences firsthand was pretty interesting to see like okay they have millions of bucks but okay, that doesn't matter if you don't do it right You know, it can actually make it worse throwing that much money at it, you know? So, so that was, that was an interesting kind of side note of it, you know? And then just the resilience of these guys, you can't keep these guys down, man. There, there's something to be said of coming from where they've come of poverty to, to keep their chins up in tough, tough circumstances. You know, I don't know if Americans in some of the posture spots could be that resilient, you know? just because you're living in the streets like their houses collapsed right And there there is no federal there is no help coming for a while you know so to just from the sheer time of how long it takes to build a house like you're it's going to take a second to recover that you know so similar to the south and katrina i think i think that was similar mm-hmm. just that magnitude and there's just that many people it just takes a while to recover you know
1: has the has the town recovered now would you say i mean well, it did, man.
0: We were doing really good. And then this pandemic totally, just pulled out yeah. again, you know? And that's something that's like, that's the difference is that that's everybody. That's not just poor mm-hmm. Ecuador, right? That was the whole world. And that was where it was the realization that the help's not coming, guys. You know, yeah. this isn't going to be, this is ourselves fixing ourselves. This isn't the earthquake where millions, you know, half a billion dollars came to help. That There's none of that this time, you know? So... To be honest, it's really rough because of the, we're a tourism spot, you know? And so with all of the PCR testing to get in and out, and I don't care either way what your opinion is on that, but it just makes traveling logistics harder, you know, because you don't just jump on a plane and pop to the beach anymore. You, yeah. Before you jump on a plane, within 72 hours, you got to get something stuck up your nose. And then yeah. let's say your plane gets bumped and then you're, you're you know, just on down the line. So traveling is trickier. And CoVID's been really hard on us. The earthquake we did we recovered pretty well because we had so much help. Um, but this has been a harder recovery path for tourism mm. for us for sure.
1: What does that do to the community in terms of um, just that poverty line maybe creeping closer and closer to people's heads that might have been above the water for a bit? does it you know does it increase crime? Does it increase yeah. Un- yeah. comfort? like what does it look like when a community is squeezed like that? crime goes up, petty
0: crime goes up, robberies go up, um, you know, and, and people go back to their roots, right? So kids that maybe weren't going to be fishermen or fishermen now, you know, they're going back to doing kind of the artisanal stuff where you, you don't need any tourism to make money off that, you know? So, but, but then again, that's, that's, it's a waterfall effect because, the fish goes to the restaurants that are feeding the tourists. You know so what I mean? You know. Fish gets cheap too. And so the whole economy's. I mean, it, it shuts it down to be honest. And, and so the difference is that Ecuador is the size of Colorado and way less people, right? So last Christmas, they shut down the whole country with a text message. Christmas is canceled. Nobody move and set up police checkpoints so that nobody can move. Right. You could yeah. never do that in the United States. People would be up in arms about that. So there's, there's things like that where, as stifling as it can be with these COVID restrictions, in other countries, some countries relatively can be can be way worse. When you look at, as far as restricting your control and actually being able to do that, you know, that's hmm. one thing that makes Americans uniquely American is they're uh, they're pretty bold, right? It's it's be hard to tell an American not to do something for Christmas, <laughs> and then actually enforce yeah. that. You know? So,
1: are are there any anything that keeps you or Maya like up at night? Are there things in the world, you know, abroad or in your own community that you're genuinely concerned about? In the world today? Um,
0: you know, one thing being internationally and how much control they have on on us moving, you know, I'd be it would be a bummer if I couldn't make it back. If one of my friends or family got sick, you know, if I had to be somewhere and that kind of international travel is being controlled, that's, that's, and I'm not, I'm not losing sleep over it to be honest, but those are kind of like the current pandemic things, you know, that could kind of go wrong for us. That would be, that'd be terrible. You know, and and then when the pandemic was really hitting it is how many people were having to pass on by themselves. You know what I mean? That's, Mm -hmm. that's just kind of been on the back of my mind since the beginning of this whole thing you know not too much to be honest man it's a pretty good life one thing that i do see is just just the level um i love america and i love being american i'm proud of where we are and there's some american hate going on you know for whatever reasons and i don't really care about the reasons but and that's been a continued thing for me for 14 years across political things I don't care about mm. that but what I do see that doesn't make me proud to be America right now is the amount of fear that's getting shoved down you guys' throat and, and it's working you know like mm. just there's just a level of anxiety that I've never seen before you know and it's not one thing that you can put your finger on and it's and it's the world you know but I think down I think America's elevated a little bit. And I think it's comes from the media, you know, and just because we don't have media like we do up in the States, we don't have the 24 hour CNN or Fox news. I don't even have a TV. I've never had a TV, you know, but when you go home, when I go to America, TV is a centerpiece in the living room, you know, so something's on that thing some way, you know, when you're, you're just flicking through cable news, chances are there's some kind of scary shit coming through there, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. just from the style of the culture that we have where we have tvs and living rooms and that's kind of what we base it's easier for them to funnel fear into us i think up there and it's easier for them to raise anxiety levels and by them i don't mean any conspiracy theory thing i just mean in general so um i just think i just think it's it's a tough time to be an american right now with the political Mm -hmm. strife with the way we were economically already not saving a lot of money mm-hmm. living in pretty leveraged situations from our housing buying you know maybe a little more car than we can afford that's american you know that's the american way is being leveraged and working our asses off and paying it off and coming out anyway you know but you mix it you sprinkle a little covid on there and kids can't be in school you know there's a lot of jobs to take over and i think it just turned the pressure up a little bit and and so you're seeing it you know i'm watching my friends marriages get in trouble, you know, and you're seeing just the other, something's going to pop. If you squeeze something, it's (laughs) going to pop out one end or the other, you know, and so you're starting to see different levels of uh, stress kind of manifest themselves in different ways up there.
1: So with your uh, wisdom that you now have living on the beach for 14 years, I mean, you look like a pirate. I think you live that lifestyle. I'm very proud of you for that. If you were to write a book to you know send back home that encapsulated you know just the philosophy that you found, some of the highlights of your worldview, what would you title that book and what would you put in it?
0: It's fun. we were actually talking about this, a friend Paul Ronto and I we were, we were talking about how to write a book called "How to Be Forty and Not Suck." Um, <laughs> Cause we're all around that age right now, all of our, you know, we're around 40, you know? And so this is like the crux in your life, right? You're halfway through. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I don't know if we get another shot at this ride, you know? And so how do you want to close the second half? And so, you know, statistics are at 40, you live to 80, right? And that's, that seems pretty real when you look at uh, how long you're going to live, you know? And so I don't know. I think really, really think about that, man. Like I think about that a lot. I th- because i get to see how other people live so much because i live in a hotel so i get to constantly mm-hmm. measure myself versus that guy's in germany about my age likes to surf what's he do for a job that guy's from spain and this so i get to see a bunch of different international me's <laughs> peers basically and how how they're doing different stuff and I think like look up and, and, and look at yourself and see where you're doing and see where you want to be in three years, because if you actually have a plan, you can get there, you can do anything in three years, you know, from completely change your career to change your location, to change a lot of things in your life. If you look three years out from where you were three years before, you're a different person, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think people just kind of get in the grind up there, man, and just work their thirties away. Right. And then they worked and then now they're 40 and they're like, holy shit, am I going to work my 40s to 50s away? Hmm. And so and so think about it and talk about it. Like, what do you want in your life? Because you're running out of time, you know, and and to think that you're not is a a very American thing, I think, because you can see it in how much vacation we have compared to internationally. Like Europe, Europeans have a minimum of 30 days vacation. That's how we can tell who's Americans here is when they get here on Friday. And like, Hey, when you guys, how long you guys want to check in? We're only going to be here three days. We have to get back to work. That's, that's you're American 100%, you know? And so how to be 40 and not suck is to have more time. And so, so to have more time, you gotta, you either have to make more or spend less. Those are the two mm-hmm. inputs, right? And so at what, at what ratio do you hit your happiest self, right? Because to make more usually entails working a lot more. To spend less, you just got to be happier with less shit. So sometimes it's easier to go that direction than it is to make a lot more money because to double your income, you're going to have to go back to school or you're going to have to do something else or whatever other crazy stuff is. You're you're At 40, the chances of you making a bunch of more money are not that good. The chances of you coming up with a different lifestyle in the next 24 months to live within the, the, the income that you have, that's maybe a little bit more realistic, you know? And then set goals and go do shit, man. Don't get stuck in Netflix land, Walmart land, just doing the same shit. Set some goals, man. Be scared of the routine. The routine will kill you. Um, you know, yeah, chase the It's worth the fight. Chase it down.
1: That's good, man. And it reminds me of a like a, a thought exercise where it's like, what would your eighteen-year-old self say to your you know adult version yep. right now? Like what? what would you talk about what would they think just playing that out um, yeah and
0: yeah do, do that with big things in your life right like your your career you know or or even you know more intimate things like the the amount of beers you drink in a week you know like i'm i'm 3 years out of no alcohol and that is by far the best decision i've ever made in my life hands down and i wasn't you know i wasn't like clinically alcoholic maybe i wasn't doing crazy stuff for vodka or you know selling my kids or anything like that but just i wasn't able to perform at the level that i am now because it's not in my life and that's something that i see people in their 40s kind of taking for granted you know Mm. like kind of keep going down that path that you're in your 20s and holy shit you're not 20 anymore bro like you're 40 you know i'm from like health standpoints to what you like base your life around you know so I think it's a good time just to gut check yourself and have some big questions. Am I happy with my spouse, right? Am I happy with my career? Those kind of big ass questions because you only have, if it goes really good, you only have 40 more years, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe 50. And how good are those last 10 anyway, right? How, how good is your body and that kind of stuff anyway? So if you're in the second half of it, you might as well try to enjoy it. Give it a shot, mm-hmm. you know?
1: It's a very American thing of you to say, um, look around you and, and think about improving all the things in your life. I, uh, I just like to poke on that, that thought that like we, we all should be happy all the time. Um, and i and just to be clear, like, I love everything that you just said. It is uh, an interesting game that I've played with myself. It's the finding contentment with what you have and really, you know, watering that grass so that it grows rather than looking at um, you know, the things that you don't have, the lifestyle you don't have, and kind of fixating on those. It's definitely a balance because you can make yourself crazy. You can make yourself go down all kinds of paths. And I think that's sort of, I- I'm just sensitive to that because in my last you know, business, I was working really hard for a very specific future that I thought was gonna make me happy. And before I knew it, 10 years had passed and all I had done is worked and I wasn't any closer to that, you know, that better situation and I find that I'm just a lot more content when I am content, and and like you said, you know, minimizing the amount of shit you need, minimo- minimizing that lifestyle obsession is a is a really great way to to um, simplify things down to where you actually can appreciate a person or an object that you own or an experience that you're having because you're not just piling on, you know, this um, trying to fix the problem by like you know radically altering your your lifestyle. I don't know. It's a that's a that's a deep topic there. I had another question though, um, on that on that topic. Okay, so yeah, kind of wrapping this all back together, because we started off talking about crypto, and now that you know you've kind of shared a little bit about your underlying, you know, view of the world, how does how does how did crypto fit into those values and that perspective? And Maybe how has that changed and what is it to you now?
0: So originally, and also today, crypto is a chance to battle corruption. Cash is really easy to hide and manipulate and move around and under the table. And if you take the idea of digitized money and smart money, you can potentially track it easier within government facilities. And so part of the reason why the developing nations are developing still when some of the other more developed places, look at the the difference between Mexico and the United States. There is no reason why Mexico should be at the poverty level that it is. And the reason that it is that is because of corruption, straight up, that's it, that's the only reason. And so to battle corruption, a way to do that is through Bitcoin and through digital money. And that's a chance of hope. That's a chance of making the Southern hemisphere, which is largely Africa and South America. If you put those two together, those that is the developing part of the world. It gives them a shot. It gives them a shot at wealth. It gives them a shot at financial transparencies within their governments. When you throw in smart contracts into the mix where you can't, give your uncle that has the water company under the table payments to move trucks for you and not the other guy, little subtle stuff like that, that we're, we're beyond because of our ease of legislation, because of the consequences of our judicial system, where you actually get in trouble for breaking the law. And we have the wherewithal to enforce those laws, right? That takes money to do that, you know? And so it takes some lubrication. And if you can skip some of those trust steps, through these politicians that come through banana Republic style families that have run this continent, since Spain came here back when Spain came here. That's the only way to fix it because Mm -hmm. if the people that are printing the money are also in power and have all the lawyers, you can't beat them. So to see a shift of value from a fiat currency into a more trustworthy digital currency, that's, it's everything that crypto is right. It's, it's the chance of telling the truth to people that need it the most. So I love it here and I love that part of crypto and that we're gonna probably within our lifetime see a shift away from just outright, they're always gonna be corruption, right? And I'm not saying America's not corrupt. We just It's just on a billion and trillion dollar level. Normal people like us don't get to see it. Down here, normal people get to see the corruption because you can still buy a police officer for 20 bucks and a speeding ticket. It happens every day. So I'm not by no means am I saying that it doesn't exist in first world nations, however you want to put that, but it's a shot. It's a shot at least to to get it a little bit more equal, a little bit more fair from the haves and the have nots.
1: That's awesome, man, such a good answer. And that really, I mean, it goes all the way back to that original coffee shop meeting where we were just so excited about the potential of some of these things. Not just for the get-rich-quick, you know, lottery, slot ticket, or slot machine, lottery ticket, but that, um, yeah, the the ability for humans to solve problems in new ways is really needed right now. And just recognizing that this is a new frontier, we wanted to be, you know, on the forefront of it. And even though we've kind of got, you know, kicked around by the market element, I think it's still an exciting place to to hold hope. And to maybe not just wait for someone to fix the problems, but to be talking about the problems and talking about the solutions. Um, I know you and I were working on a number of different, you know, little projects that, um, you know, each one of them could turn into something. You know, whether it's NFTs for raising money to save the rainforest, or whether it's, you know, developing some tools that, you know, developing countries could use for emergency relief and things like that. Like there's, there's a whole world of possibilities, and it just takes the people with the passion and the vision and the and the hope to come and and weave these things into something useful for humanity and not just doge coins that are suckering everybody and (laughs) pumping dumping so
0: yeah yeah, man yeah man i like it and you know and uh, just thinking about there's no other aspect in my life where i talk and, and engage with ideas like this There's no, I don't do it at my work. I don't do it with my partner. I don't do it with most of my friends, right? To have most, looking back on this last year, most of my big level thought, philosophical, fun, deep conversations have not necessarily been with friends or family. They've been with kind of random crypto people, you know? And so that's what keeps me coming back is because sitting down with somebody that understands the philosophy of crypto can end up in these crazy conversations that are new. You know, and they're fresh and it's not the same old shit. And it's not the same old way to run stuff. And it's not Democrat or Republican or it's not a bunch of other boring stuff to me. You know, it's these new conversations and a new way to set up the world that's that's going to happen with or without us, I think.
1: so. Cool. That's probably a good note to end on full circle. And I think it really highlights the value of the garden because it's just a container full of people that are having real world experiences and also coming together around this, this conversation about what we value and how we want to, um, yeah, use that value to live better, to solve problems. And it's fun. I'm excited to continue, continue down this path and see where it unfolds. And hopefully it brings us back down to canoes in the Amazon and monkeys yeah. in the rainforest and more yeah, for uh, sure. shared wisdom.
0: I'm excited about this year and see what it has soaked.
1: Cool, dude. Well, that's probably a good place to call it, but that was awesome. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, dude. Thank you so much. You're good at that.